Hello, everyone. Welcome to another, I was going to say a new episode, which each episode is new (laughs) of Outside the Studio. This is Tessa. I'm so excited to be joined by a very special guest. Madarnan is here today, and we're going to talk about many different things. And I want to just give you a little bit of background on who she is and what she's all about, which is many different things, very multifaceted. Um, But what I think is interesting, and I definitely want to dive into is this statement that uh, your life has been a constant balance between ancient traditions of meditation. Um, so yogic tools such as chanting and deep breathing um, and how that's helped you with various struggles throughout your life. Um, also, I want to dive into this aspect of your work that is being a licensed marriage and family therapist. You have mm-hmm. a private practice in Napa which is amazing living in Napa, mm-hmm. California and yes. being able to do that work there. So cool. Yeah. Um, and how you're implementing that yogic philosophy and meditation into this. I don't know if this is the right word, modern modality of um, marriage and family therapy. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, let's, and also your new book, the stressless brain, um, which I think you just mentioned you are editing. So there's going to be a second version out soon. Yes. So many things to touch on. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. It's at the end of my busy week. I just have a few clients tomorrow, but it's so exciting to be here and to talk to you. Ah, well, I, if you, if you all have not checked out the YouTube channel and watched any of the podcast episodes on YouTube, this is the one, if you are an art fan, because Mother Nan's background is full of this amu- uh, amusing, amazing <laughs> artwork, and I just want to dive into it. And this is your whole office surrounding you is this yes. beautiful artwork, right? All, um, I would say three of the walls look like the artwork behind me. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Beautiful. So, Okay. Let's talk about, I'd love to dive into that subject that I just mentioned, which is the infusion in your modern day practice of um, marriage and family counseling, Mm -hmm. infusing those ancient tradition, um, ancient healing modalities of yogic philosophy and meditation. Yeah. Walk me through that, please. Yes. So I am trained traditionally um, at the University of Oregon, which is not too far from you. And I um, have just a traditional psychology background, and I was raised in a yogic meditation, meditative and um, spiritual upbringing with my parents. And, you know, like the word that most of us have heard for a really long time is the word mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And, but even that's fairly new, if you compare it to religion and um, yogic technology, the word mindfulness is almost... Um, it was kind of like, 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 I think it was the word that kind of squeezed into psychology that then brought behind it all this old traditional, um, theories and philosophies and, and tools. And one of the things is, is that there is this big piece of healing, which is about getting to know ourselves. And I have found that just like over the 23 years of being a therapist and have trained with lots of different thought leaders in psychology is, is that 
I find often that it's really hard for people to know how to be in relationship with themselves. Like if you tell someone like, oh, like how to get to know yourself and people are like, like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, or how do I do that? And I really think that yogic technology and meditation is a perfect tool in getting to know yourself, whether if it's in the yoga studio or in your, your living room or your backyard. But when you are in a yoga pose, or you're doing a meditation, it's actually an opportunity for the different levels and layers of who you are to come up. And because you're holding a posture or moving or chanting or breathing, you're doing multiple things that allows your mind to be more focused on what you want to focus on. So it is a tool to learn how to be with yourself and get to know yourself because you get to see yourself in third person. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that in my body and my path and my study of yoga. It is, I remember my first yoga class as an adult, because mm -hmm. similar to you, I did grow up in a, in a meditative and yogic household. We, um, we were taught to meditate very young and mm -hmm. my parents were often going off to Brighton Bush to mm -hmm. do chakra healing mm -hmm. workshops. Um, and so, yeah, there, for me, and I don't know if you had something similar happen to you. There was a period of time when I was in public high school and I was in a very, uh, what I felt like was a um, very conservative uh, community. Mm -hmm. I was very much an outsider. People were not eating tofu and carrots and being vegetarian and putting crystals in their water. Like my parents were mm -hmm. at my school. So yeah. there was a period of time where I felt like I pushed away this idea of, um, healing, knowing myself, um, meditating mm -hmm. and using these healing modalities. And now as an adult, I feel like I'm rediscovering it again. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to watch the world. And I don't even know if I can use this term in this way. And I'm not even sure what I mean when I say it, but this new age mm -hmm. term for these really ancient practices. And um, I feel like I'm kind of like at war with myself over these two ideas of having grown up with these philosophies, having practiced mm -hmm. it as a child and having it be so commercialized and popularized now mm -hmm. that I don't really know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I teach it and I believe it and I know it's mm -hmm. true in my body. I felt that way, just as you described. Mm -hmm. Yoga was a place for me to come home to myself and rediscover myself as an adult. Like, oh yeah, this is what my parents were talking about. Yeah. This is why they did it. And I was like, oh yeah, I came home. Okay, here I am. And so yeah. I don't even know, that's not a question, but I guess I would love you to, to speak to that topic of new age mm -hmm. um, and kind of reconciling that, you know, how do we honor these ancient practices and bring them forward into, I'm using quotes here, yeah, the technology of these ancient practices. Well, when you were sharing what popped in my mind is, is that it sounds like you, your parents, including my parents, it was not something external. It was something that they lived and breathed by. It was a lifestyle. It was a, it wasn't just something that they, you know, like it's, it's like coming home and putting on your comfy sweats and then you just relax in them. And then you put your business suit on the next day and it's completely separate. And I think that 
you know, if you think about that time period of, of your of your parents and my parents is that it was more of them really delving into and immersing themselves and it became part of their lifestyle versus now I think this mindfulness, a lot of, you know, in pop psychology, I'm also doing my quotes here, pop psychology and, and even pop mindfulness. It's very much of this thing. I, I find that it's very much of an external of something you just kind of try on for a little bit, maybe a couple of times a week, if, you know, I go to my yoga class and I'm mindful, but then I go home and I am, you know, complaining and, and criticizing and, and freaking out where it's like, it's, it's, I've differentiated too much. And, and so I think that, you know, when I think of the idea of Eastern or yogic technology, it's kind of like medicine. It, it's it's bringing it into your system, into your body, into your lifestyle in sometimes a daily, weekly, hourly path. Like for example, like one of the most easiest thing is being mindful about our breath. Now we cannot not breathe or we would pass out or die, but we can throughout the day, take a moment. If it's, you know, like if, if you have an eye watch, it says you can, you can set it where it says breathe every hour it goes ding and a little thing that says breathe. So it is, I mean, you can bring that as one way of bringing it into your life where it then integrates because when our mind stops for even just a moment and is consciously aware of your breath, you're restructuring how you're thinking in that moment, which has the ripple effect into how you're feeling, which has the ripple effect in how then you behave. Yeah, that's so well said. I love that. There's a quote somewhere on, is it on your website? I saw it. Mm -hmm. It was, it's kind of like your ethos that you live by that you just spoke to. And it's, I think I can guess. Yes. Go for it. Guess. (laughs) It's, it's breathing keeps you alive. Meditation keeps you sane. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So I'm curious, there's so many myths or reasons or ideas we have about why meditation is hard, how it should be done, Mm -hmm. why we can't do it, why we haven't started a practice, what it's supposed to look (laughs) like, (laughs) Um, all of those things that you know, when people come to me and say, oh, I can't meditate because I can't sit still or I can't Mm -hmm. meditate because my mind won't stop thinking. you know, you're integrating this tool, it sounds like into your um, therapy. Mm -hmm. And so how do you integrate that specific practice with people that may or may not say those things to you? I don't know. Do they? Oh, yeah. I I have heard all of that. I have heard that I I can't meditate. I don't know how. And the one I hear a lot is I can't get my mind to stop. And I always tell them, well, you shouldn't, you would die. Yes. So, um, and so meditation, um, there's a couple things. Meditation, I always say the meditation's goal is two things. One is to create space between your thoughts. And two is to change the quality of your thoughts. That is the objective of meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I work with clients, because of, as I mentioned earlier, what you think is what you feel. And what you feel is will influence how you behave. But the idea is, well, how do I change my thoughts? Well, you change your thoughts by being more aware of your thinking. And you can be more aware of your thinking if you have the, the, the capacity to watch yourself think. Because often people think 
everything they think they believe is real or true or them. So meditation and, and, and a tap people often start like just with three minutes a day. And, and I often tease, we, many people poop for longer than three minutes. They go to the bathroom and they're in there for half an hour. So I think you can commit to three minutes a day. <laughs> yes. <I> yes. <laughs> and especially if you're a man, <laughs> um, no offense to all your male listeners out there, but I have two sons and a husband and I took care of my grandpa for many years. And, and so there is something about, you know, three minutes studies actually show three minutes of meditation lowers your blood pressure. And I have had um, a, a student in one of my meditation classes um, challenge that. And she was home during one between our course and she was feeling anxious and she has a high blood pressure blood pressure. And she was like, hmm, let's see if this is true. And so she went and meditated for a few minutes and then her dogs disrupted her and she stopped and she went and took her blood pressure and it was low. It was lower. And she was like, oh, Mother Nan's right. And it's not that I'm right. It's just that this is scientifically proven. And so three minutes does make a difference. And, you know, have you ever been, have you ever driven or had a friend who was driving and said, oh my, oh my God, oh my God. I missed an accident by like just 20 seconds. Like it's such a small space that can alter our lives. Mm -hmm. So imagine like three minutes a day or even one minute a day of being really mindful with your breath, a breathing pattern or, or a mantra or an affirmation or a prayer. Like if you can just stop and take one minute a day, maybe once or twice a day and do that for a month, you might be surprised that there is a little shift and that's, it's just practice and it's stopping and bringing your mental awareness to a focus. If it's your breath or if it's a prayer or if it's chanting or if it's an affirmation, but you bring that awareness at that moment, if it's one minute or three minutes or 10 minutes or seven or whatever, you're unplugging into the that root like hamster wheel thinking, hamster wheel behavior. And you do that enough over time, it will change. Mm. It will change you. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I love it. So, you know, I mean, part of me wants to go in the direction of asking you how we make that practice stick, which for myself, you know, it's kind of an on again, off again, I will develop a, a morning ritual where I will be on it daily. Um, and then inevitably some disruption happens. And even though I do not sit on the toilet and poop for 30 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> maybe more like five, <laughs> sorry, all TMI, but mm -hmm. it's the truth. We can carve out three minutes a day, but why don't we? So what are your suggestions for making this habit really stick. Yeah. Well, well, there's two pieces. One is from what you just said, why don't we? Well, we don't because unfortunately we as human beings like things that are quick and easy. We're just wired that way. It's, you know, I, I often tell parents, like if you were to ask your child, do you want to have a um, spaghetti squash casserole or do you want to have chocolate cake for dinner? Every single time they will pick chocolate cake. They just, it's just how we're wired. Mm -hmm. And, and so part of it is that sense of how to bring it in. And the second piece is how to make an, a commitment. 
So we make commitments all the time, whether, whether we're aware of it or not. And, and for me, I used to, for a lot of my life, also kind of do it and then not do it and meditate and then not meditate. And then about, it was 2007, I had been integrating for the first, like begin integrate meditation as an intervention for my clients. And I was asking them to meditate. And I realized one day, you know what? If I don't talk, if I don't walk my talk, they're going to know. You just know if someone's not being authentic or they're, you know, they're saying you should do this, but they may not do it. Like, I, I don't know. Like I've had doctors before tell me like, I have to exercise more and be healthy and mindful. And then they're really out of, out of shape. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, it, it, there's like, there's a part of us that just disconnects. And so what I did was really simple. I got a piece of paper and I wrote meditate with an exclamation point and I put it next to my bed. And I was, you know, like I try to meditate first thing in the morning back then. And sometimes I would miss it because my kids were little and I was rushing. I got out late and la, la, la. And I would go to go to bed and I would see that piece of paper and I would stop. And sometimes I would be like, oh, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse my language. No, And, and I, but I knew I had made a commitment to myself. And so sometimes I would just, I'd get in my bed. And I would do it right then. Sometimes I was even laying down and I would half-ass it, but I did it because I made that commitment to myself. And I started with just seven minutes and I went between seven minutes and 11 minutes every night. And after a couple years, I ended up, then I ended up switching to going into the morning. And then over the years, I have increased my time to 11 minutes to 22 minutes. I did 30, I've done 31 minutes every day. But what happens for me is I made a commitment. I said, this is important to me. And and here's the thing is I have found in psychology, it's not necessarily difficult to follow through. It's difficult to get to that place of our own truth that I'm going to commit and I fold into it. Mm. Once you commit, we just, then the decision's done. It's that decision of often we're wishy-washy. We're like, oh, I'm going to try to do this or, okay, I'm going to do that or I'm going to make an effort. And we kind of use a lot of language and thinking that keeps us on the fence, which is fine. Like, like no criticism. Like I get it. I have other parts of my life that I do that in. But for me, in that sense, I was like, okay, if I'm going to teach this to people, I need to be able to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some days over, you know, like what we're in 2022 and that was 2007. There are days that I've missed. And then I'm like driving. I'm like, okay, I'm doing it now. And I push play and my eyes are open because I'm driving and, and, and I'm chanting the whole time or I'm doing my breath. And sometimes that's, that's the best I do that day. And, but that is still a form of meditation. So you, you brought it up a couple of times, chanting mantra, um, in my mind, synonymous with one another. I'm not sure how you feel about that, how you think about it. I'm curious to know, uh, what your experience was with mantra, if it was part of your childhood and your practice, mm-hmm. um, and how you use it now and do you use it now with clients? I do. So I have found for me over you know, years of practicing, I can drop the quickest into myself and into that frequency through chanting a lot faster than any other intervention. And I have found that 
you know, once clients kind of get past the weirdness of it, 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 most people who are like, oh, it's so weird. I can't do it. I don't like it. They do it a couple of times and they're like, oh my God, I just love chanting. Yeah. And, sure. you know, and it's not actually that weird and abnormal just before in our culture in the West, what it was before was twice a week in church singing hymns. Mm. It is the same thing, whether you were singing it in Latin or you were singing it in, in English or French or Spanish, or whatever country you're in, that is a form of meditation. I, ask, I often say prayer in, in church was one of the original meditation. And so what I like about chanting, there's, there's some, I can bring some science in it as well, but first the psychology is what I like about chanting is, is that it allows you, because our brains and humans are just amazing. We can think, feel, do something, plan something all at the same time. So when you're chanting, I, this is another one, one of my other quotes, I always say that, um, Chanting is a washing machine for your brain, your mind, excuse me, meditation is a washing machine for your mind and chanting a spot remover. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you're, when you're chanting, whether it's sitting silently in your room or in a chair or on the floor with your eyes closed and you're chanting and reciting again and again, or you're driving in the car with your eyes wide open, paying attention to where you're driving, but you're belting a chant your mind is literally it's, it's chanting is like it's like a cheesecloth your your minds are going constantly through the repetitive repeating of of the affirmation or the mantra or whatever you're chanting and when you do that you you actually can come to a new awareness in whatever problem you're having in your life mm, so that. yeah and so in so back to the weirdness of it, it is weird. It's totally different. And I get that. It's not weird to me because I've done it my whole life, but I get it. It is weird. Like um, I've started to um, develop um, other meditation. I have a new meditation coming out in December, which is my first release of my Christian meditational prayer med album. And so I have a Christian album coming out and then next year I'll have a Jewish album coming out and I'm learning other faiths and other prayers and, and we're, and I'm doing some in Latin. And for me, it's super foreign, which is actually a great experience. So when I'm teaching people Sanskrit and I'm like, oh, it's so easy. You just say, you know, hummy, hum, brum, hum. And they're just like, hummy, ham, bram, ham, you know, like they're just like, <laughs> I, I can't, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's so easy, but I'm trying to like do Latin now and I'm all tongue twisted and I get it. So, but here's the thing. When we are saying an affirmation in our mother tongue, if it's English or Spanish or French, when we're saying an affirmation in our mother tongue, our mind can come in and counterbalance, counteract it. So here's an example. Like, let's say my affirmation is, um, I, I, you know, like, here's one from my college days. I actually still remember it. I'm, I'm a glorious, gracious child of God. I'm joyful, serene, positive, and loving. So if we're, if let's say I'm saying this and I'm sit, sitting and doing this and repeating it again and again, and I'm, let's say this day, I'm in a really bad mood. I'm feeling kind of low self-esteem. I'm feeling bad about myself. And so here I am, I'm a glorious, gracious child of God. I'm joyful. Am I really joyful? Okay. I'm a glorious, gracious child of God. I'm joyful, serene, loving. I wasn't really loving to my partner today. 
And and our mind's going to come in there and going to try to like, it's, it's almost like, like I'm doing a volley. And then like my mind's like, no, not today. Sorry. You're out because we, we connect to words that we understand and we give meaning and our meanings are completely influenced by our childhood drama and trauma. So when we use Sanskrit or another language that we don't necessarily understand the words because it's not our mother tongue, we can look up and see what it means. But if we're reciting an affirmation or a prayer or a mantra in a different language, our mind cannot come in as quickly and shoot it down or disqualify it or, or beat ourselves up. It can't because if we're sitting there or you're sitting there and you're repeating again, even just for three minutes in that time period, your mind's just trying to make sense. Cause this is what I tell my, a lot of clients, our minds thinks in contrasts, right, wrong, good, bad, stop, go. And when we bring in a mantra or a prayer or an affirmation and we're repeating it, in, in, it can be in our own language sometimes or in, in a language that we don't understand, like not our mother tongue, if it's Latin or, or um, Hindi or, you know, different Sanskrit, our mind has to suddenly go, okay, wait, I can't make sense of this. And guess what happens? It slows down for just a moment. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'd love to dive into Sanskrit a little bit with you um, in terms of so in the lineage that I studied, we learned specific mantras um, throughout my teacher trainings for specific um, outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious in your work with clients, if you give mantras for specific mm-hmm. reasons or how you go about working with people to decide on whether it's an affirmation that's in a mother tongue or a foreign language, or if it's in Sanskrit, how do you approach that? Well, it's basically, um, if people are open and don't have, like, they're not super religious, or they're not weirded out by the chanting, I I always give Sanskrit, because that's what I'm personally um, very knowledgeable in. And, and so that's just what I do. But I have had clients over the years, more so that are very Christian, who don't feel comfortable. And then I work with them to go through um, some of the prayers to help them find a sentence or two that I feel is more in the more of an uplifting message. Um, sadly to say, no offense to any Christians, but a lot of the scripture is quite negative. It's very, it's a pulling down mm. stuck energy. It's about like a lot around sin and, and, and that, and when someone's depressed or anxious, looking at it through that lens, isn't going to help them, you know, but if I have found just from my own studies is that, um, you know, Christ or even Muhammad and all different faiths, it is really about love and acceptance. And so it is finding that but there are some sound like like in in um sanskrit there are just sound currents that we can use which is like you know ra ma da sa sa se so hung which is just like it's like a pulse and it's just repeating i mean you could even just do you know do re mi fa so la ti do you could because it's just it's a pulse pulse chanting or pulse breathing 
activates the vagus nerve. So basically, you know, when I'm working with, with clients, I just meet them where they're at. I'm not trying to get them to meet where I'm at. I'm meeting them where they're at. And then I serve something in, and I will often even practice with them. Also, when I first started bringing the uh, meditation and technology into my practice, there's there's a lot of different kinds of um, recordings in in the world, like in iTunes and Spotify and all of that of chants and stuff. But they often have very it's very sing songy and very kind of like it's really fast or it's really confusing if you're really new to it. And that's what actually inspired me to start recording. And I've recorded over sixty five. Um, tracks for for chanting and breath meditations that are very simple and very easy to follow. Even if it's really wordy, I, I slow it down and I pronunciate it really well so that people can listen and they can f- um, follow along with. And I tell people first, first you listen, and when you're comfortable, then you mouth along, and when you're more comfortable, then you whisper, and when you're more comfortable, then you you chant out loud. Ah, what a beautiful way to get comfortable with it. I love that. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. So I'm curious, like if someone's sitting here listening to this conversation and they're like, well, I want a mantra mm-hmm. do. And they're the follow-up question is, I felt like I heard this a lot throughout teacher trainings. Well, what should my mantra be? Like, mm-hmm. how, how should I even approach that? Do I need to have one assigned to me from a teacher? Mm-hmm. Um, can I just make one up and... I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. <laughs> so I have a couple thoughts. So one is I um, I don't believe that humans these days should go to a teacher to help them be enlightened. I believe that we can do that within ourselves. And I what I tell people is you just, you know, like you can go, there's, there's so much meditation and mantra music out there right now. And you would just, you would find something and listen to it again and let it speak to your heart. Um, that's one option. The other option is, is that um, depending on what modality you do is that you, you know, you would just look up like something you want to f- focus on if it's like being more heart centered or being more intuitive or being more connected or breaking through blocks. And so you starting more with what you want to change in your life. And then you would find a prayer or a hymn or a mantra that talks about that aspect and then you would try that and again you might do the same mantra or the same prayer for a month you might do it for a year you might do it for 10 years there is no right and wrong it's just about doing something ah thank you for saying that (laughs) (laughs) um i'd like to switch gears and talk about the book the stressless brain yeah. Um, I personally haven't had a chance to page through it myself. So maybe like the rest of the audience, we could benefit from an overview. Yes. What is it about? How did it yes. come about? Yeah. So um, I've been a therapist for about 23 years and I love, 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 love learning. I love learning. I've, I take tons of courses and classes and I have to get my CEUs and, and I love learning and I love reading. And I, and I also read self-help books because I'm a therapist and, um, and I like to work on myself. And I found like one of my pet peeves was I would read these self-help books, many of them. And I'd be like, Oh, they totally get how I feel. I feel 
oh, I feel validated. And then I get to the end of the book and then I'm kind of like, well, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And the what to do part is often so short or confusing. And, and I felt kind of frustrated. I was just like, okay, I understand. I know what my issue is, but I don't know how to change it. That's why I'm reading this book. And, and that was a big pet peeve of mine. And in my therapy practice, in my life coaching, I'm very much a solution focused therapist. I, I have tons of trainings and I'll bring in like mindfulness and, and somatic work or cognitive work, or I can do trauma work and all these things, but I'm very much about let's create a change. I don't want to waste people's money and time. And so when I decided, I've always kind of wanted to, to write a book. I was like, you know what? My book's going to be full of tools. And so that's how I came about to writing The Stressless Brain, which right now I'm doing the second edition because there's some things that have changed and I want to adjust in the book. But basically the first half of the book talks about a little bit about how I got to where I am a little bit, like with my, my background, my upbringing. But then it really talks about the differences between stress and anxiety, which it's normal to have stress. We can't escape it. But if we have chronic anxiety, this is what can cause um, health problems and um, behavior problems and relationship problems and so forth. And then I talk about the different kinds of anxiety. And then I talk about how anxiety impacts our, our lives and our health. And then I go into some yogic technology around, I do go through chakras and, and I use, um, it's, I use a very psychology approach to chakras and, and energy centers and how, if it's in balance, what it looks like. And if it's out of balance, how, what it looks like. And then the second half of the book, it comes with the, my current book comes with 37 meditation instructions. And when you get the book, you also get the digital download to all the music that comes with the book. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it, I just, I just wanted to create something that had lots of tools that when people were done reading it, they can then choose again, you have to self-initiate, mm-hmm. but you can then go through the meditations and you can try them. And there's a whole bunch of breath ones. <clears throat> there's a whole bunch of chanting ones and it describes um, what they're for and how to use them. Mm. Oh, I can't wait to get my hands on this beautiful book. Thank you for writing it. Thank you. Oh yeah. So, okay. So I'd love to talk about your experience with marriage counseling. Yes. Um, I have my own experience with it, <laughs> both in a relationship and also a lifelong um experience of being in therapy myself from a very young age. I started therapy around five years old, I believe. Um, and so I, f- I find it to be a really helpful tool that I keep coming back to as many times as I need. And I always want it to be a tool that I can come back to in my experience. And let's keep in mind here that I am just one person having a very limited, narrow experience of life, mm-hmm. but this is what I've noticed. And I'm curious to see what you've experienced. And I've heard other people say this in my life too. Um, so it feels to me like in each relationship where I've said, I need therapy. I want to understand, you know, that if we in a relationship need therapy together, that you're going to be on board and use this tool with me if I need it. Yeah, great. Okay, sure. (laughs) Then it comes 
then, then an, a real issue, like a foundational crack starts to show itself. And I'm like, okay, now it's time to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. I met with a lot of resistance from my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I'm not alone in this. So I wonder, you know, if you have any theories about what that is about and how, if we are the person in the relationship who feels like, okay, as a couple, I need this. I need a mediator. I need mm-hmm. somebody who's objective third party to help us talk. Cause we can't hear each other right now. Mm-hmm. We're not listening. How would you okay so I guess it's a two-part question yeah the the one is what is your experience with this and then the second part question is if you're the person that feels like I really need therapy in my relationship or really need this tool and the partner is not willing to go is there any I I don't know if advice is the right word yeah Yeah. Um, so one of my specialties is relationships I have my clients are couples and I it's very hard work and I love working with couples and um and a lot of the times one of them does not come to therapy which I don't actually think as in my experience is necessarily a deal breaker unless that is for the person mm-hmm. so there's two parts so one is is that even though we are more, forward thinking and therapy and mental health is pretty mainstream these days. There's still a stigma around therapy. And I'm going to just be lopsided here for a second for men. More and more men are going to therapy. And I actually see a lot of men, I would say in my individual clients, sometimes more than half my clients are men. And, and so, um, you know, so I don't have that personal experience with in, in my practice, but that is usually the case in, in, in our culture. Now, and part of that, it's not necessarily all their fault because we, we learn how to be in relationship from our parents. And in the past, men weren't big communicators and that gets trickled down. And yes, times have changed. And there's always the exception of being, you know, definitely I know my language is saying all or nothing, but there's always the exception, of course. And so there's a couple things. One is um, when I do work with couples, we talk about deal breakers, which is usually two to four things that if this happens, you would leave the relationship. And we all have them, but we don't tend to talk about it. So the kind of couples work that I do is called relational life therapy by Terry Real. Yes. Yeah. I love and, Terry Real. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. So I've, yeah, no, he's amazing. <laughs> I've studied with him for 15 years. I know him very well. Yeah. Oh my God. And um, yeah. And so he has a great um, audio book called Fierce Intimacy. And I actually often have my couples listen to it before they even start working with me. I'm literally listening to that right now. I'm so sorry to interrupt oh, you, but that no, it's fine. feels like magic. Please continue. Yes. (laughs) No, it's really, really good. And so I work with clients with the deal breakers and, and sometimes, you know, so, so each person has to decide, is that a deal breaker? If my partner isn't going to go to therapy, does that mean that I'm done with the relationship? And, and when we are like feeling like, oh my God, I can't make that decision. Oh, that's too hard. Or I'm afraid or da, 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 da. That's kind of codependent issue because it's that idea of, I'm afraid to ask for what I want because he, she may leave me. Mm -hmm. That's a codependent issue. But here's the thing is for those of you who can see us on YouTube, I often do this with my clients. I get a pen and I put it in front of my face and I say, this pen is your relationship. 
and off of the pen is you and here's your partner. If one of you changes who goes to therapy or not, if one changes, the relationship changes and the other person has to change. They cannot not change. So it is actually beneficial. It can create change if only one person goes to therapy. And what kind of change? I can't say, but something will change because yeah. one person's working on themselves and they'll their yeah. behavior and their thinking will change, which will impact and influence the other person. I want to shape up or they'll leave. Yeah. Or you'll, or you'll leave. I, I do want to unpack that a little bit because I've also had this conversation with many people in my circle as well. And there seems to be the stigma that if my partner doesn't work on themselves at the rate that I do, mm-hmm. I will grow and I will grow either out of this relationship, which is kind of what you're saying, right? Or they'll realize they need to do some work on themselves too. Mm-hmm. And they will have to change. And I, so I'm wondering if you think change can happen just purely by osmosis, like because you're can. seeing your partner change. Yes. I, I have a, a, a couple, uh, an individual client I've worked with off and on for years and her husband is, is it, you know, it won't, won't come to therapy. I think he's maybe come twice only because he got dragged in, but he really is not interested. And I have through her sharing, he has changed over the years because of her change. And sometimes when we do video sessions, he'll be sitting in the living room in the back and he'll pipe in once in a while. And I, and I'll call him Bob. I'm like, Hey Bob. And he'll be like, hi, modern man, but he won't come, but their relationship has changed for the better because of the work she's done. So if you were going to explain that phenomenon, mm-hmm. what would you attribute it to? Okay, I'm going to explain it in psychology and in spirituality. So psychology change, what happens is, is that when we change our behavior, the other person is, remember our mind thinks in contrast, right? Wrong, good, bad. So if we always came home and we're always like nag, 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 the other person's going to usually be in defense. Why are you always nagging me? Why are you always getting on me? Regardless if it's male, female, 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 or whatever. If the person who's nagging is now working on themselves, they're looking at their control issues, they're looking at their manipulation issues, they're looking at their fears, they're looking at these things that's feeding because they're working so hard to change this person, which is really what nagging is. I want you to change because I'm not getting my needs met or I'm afraid or I'm projecting or something or another. Mm. But if the person works on changing themselves and now they walk into the house and the nagging has stopped or even gone down 75% or 50%, it changes naturally the the dance, that dance that happens in, in a relationship. The other thing too, if we think about science, we have these mirroring neurons in our brain that if one person, if you come in and let's say you're like, my partner never smiles and they're just kind of grumpy and they're just this quiet. But if you made an effort of smiling more yourself, stop criticizing and just smiling more and changing your gesture over time, they will change their gesture as well because there's these mirroring neurons, as I mentioned, that literally will copy. Like if I were to touch my nose a whole bunch of times in the next few minutes, you would eventually touch your nose. 
It's just, it's that mirror neurons. It copies what we're doing. So that's the psychology and science. The, The spiritual essence of it has to do with we are, when we're in a relationship and we're interacting and we're having sex and we're sharing meals and we're having these exchange of, of experiences together, we become connected. So it's, it's like the relationship is this holding vessel where these two people are in. If one person changes, it's going to alter and change the environment within the vessel. And the other person just will change because you're connected. It, for example, when um, I can call my husband and just by how he answers or how my first word out of my mouth, he instantly or I instantly know if, if he or, or I are in a good mood or not. We could, we just know it. It, it. And because we're connected. And so when we do the work, it does move through that energy connection between two people. Mm. Yeah. So I was um, listening to the section in Fierce Intimacy last night where Terry Reels describing this, I, um, this practice of, um, I think it is the relational um, intimacy part where he's talking about um, creating a habit of affirmation throughout your day. So mm-hmm. moving away from what's wrong? What am I not getting? Mm -hmm. What do I need? And instead appreciating the positive. So thinking Mm -hmm. about saying one or two or three nice things to your partner or doing Mm -hmm. one or two nice things to your partner a day. So, um, I practiced that last night with my partner and it was, I got really nervous. I was like, (laughs) I was thinking about Terry, how he was like, the first couple of times you do this, you're going to fail miserably. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be a train wreck. And so like my heart was pounding. And then I got, (laughs) I got the sweetest response. Mm. It was like the sweetest, most loving, and it was instantaneous. It wasn't like I had to go on and on and grovel. And it was just like an instantaneous reception of what I said. So I, I truly, um, believe that this works. Absolutely. That, and also, you know, that old saying, treat someone how you want to be treated. Uh, I say bullshit. If in relationships, treat the other person, how they want to be treated. If both people do that, you will have a completely transformed relationship. So, so if, if my husband knows that I'm, I'm more of an, extrovert my husband's more of an introvert so if he knows okay she's an intro, an extrovert if he's making an effort to connect with me and talk to me and share with me and I make an effort to to slow down a little bit be more quiet let him have space to think about his thoughts we're both giving each other the space to to be mm which it's different than I want you to, I need this because, you know, I don't feel loved. Mm-hmm. I, I often tell, when I hear that from, from people, I look at them and I say, it's not going to work. And they go, well, why? I go, because you're the judge and the jury. If you say to someone, I just want to feel loved, they have no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. But if you say to them, I feel really loved when you come home and you come and kiss me. Or I feel really loved 
when you go to bed, that you don't just turn your side of the bed down and climb in, that you take both top pillows off and you move, you put my side down as well. When I walk in the room, I feel so loved. Mm -hmm. Then they know it's very concrete. And so it is, it's setting each other up for success. Yeah. And so can we apply that to a situation that is a little bit more high stakes in terms of your expressing an issue? I'll use the example that Terry uses often, which is like, he he's coming home late. Yeah. His wife is upset because he's 30 minutes late. And um, so she describes how she's feeling mm-hmm. um, describes a story she's made up about what his behavior means mm-hmm. and ends with something like, and I love you mm-hmm. and I'd like you. And this is what I need in this moment right now. Right. So could you, could you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so th- this is around communication is be a, whole, we could do a whole conversation just on communication. That's one of my areas that I work, do a lot of work with. So first thing first, when someone speaks to you and you get upset, you're not actually upset necessarily by what they said. You're upset by your interpretation of what just happened or what they said. So what Terry Real talks about is it's the communication wheel. And so what happens is when someone says something or someone does something, if you want to find resolve, you want to make a change, what people tend to do is we go after them and we usually say, well, you did, you're this and you're, you did this, therefore you are this and this. Like we go, it's, he calls a character attack. And the neck, the person's going to completely shut down and stonewall you and shut you out to protect themselves, or they're going to roll up their sleeves and put up their, you know, emotional and verbal pun, you know, like punching bot, and they're going to go after you defense. Because they're trying to protect themselves because they feel like you just attack their character. So here's how you, so there's a couple of things. The short version for time would be when someone says some things to you, if you want to disarm them, you come back with only responding to what is true. So if we'll use the example of coming home late. So if, you know, Person A walks into the house. They're 30 minutes late. Person B is like, I can't believe you're late. You're late every time. You're insensitive and you just don't care about us. And I'm so mad. Now, if we, if we, if person A goes, I'm not in, what do you mean I'm insensitive? I'm working my ass off and I'm helping to pay bills and, And, you know, I'm I'm not an ass. You're always calling me names. And now you guys off to the races in a big fight. So what you do is when your partner comes with an attack, you, you take a deep breath and you exhale, get yourself grounded and you listen to what did they just say? And you go to the part that's only true. So the part that's true is I was late and I'm often late the insensitive part or I'm an ass and all that, you leave that alone. You say nothing to that. You just respond to the first part. You're right. I'm 30 minutes late again. I'm really sorry. So that's the short version. Mm -hmm. The longer version is 
both people working on, you know, like, so if you're the person that has been done wrong by that, you're, so your partner's done something that's upset you, the long version is you start, it's, it's, you start with a few things. The first is the facts. And these are all very short, one to two sentences each, the fact, what you made up about it, how, what, what you made up made you feel and what you want. So honey, you're, you're late again, you know, you're late. What I make up about that is that you don't care about my time. That makes me feel sad and unimportant. What I would really like is if you could please in the future, if you're going to be late, at least text me and let me know, because that makes me feel like I'm important to you. And the other person, which is also, you know, is acceptance paradox. Y yes, you're right. I will make an effort to do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just love this so much. I could go on and on all day, but I can't believe it's already been almost an hour. So <laughs> I guess I'll, um, from my list of a million questions, choose one and let that be our last. And I think I would like to know a little bit more from you personally about what you would tell your younger self as, as a mother, as a mother, um, I would tell my younger self, my younger mother, my, my young mother self, like when I was young or me as a child, you as a child, okay. Young. Yeah. As a okay. child. Okay. Cause, cause I'm, I have two grown, I have an 18 and 20 year old now. So I didn't know if it was my younger self as a mother. Um, okay. So my younger self, what I would say to her is, you know, what I would say to her, I would say to her, it's safe to speak up for what you like and what you need and what, what you, excuse me, it's safe to speak up what you don't like and ask for what you need. Hmm. Because I, as a child, I was a people pleaser and I, did not, even though I had a very big personality, I didn't truly say if I didn't like something or needed something. Mm -hmm. And I would have told my younger self, it's worth it. It's worth it to speak up and ask for what you want. And sometimes even fight for it if you have to. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a scary thing to, to it is. do as a child in particular. I still yeah. struggle with that as mm -hmm. an adult. Yeah. You know, I could give you an example from yesterday, which I won't go into. We'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> what I would like to know, though, finally, is you mentioned you have many recorded um, chanting and meditation mm -hmm. options. And also, you know, you've got your book coming out again with its second edition. And, you know, for those people that are looking to connect with you, where, mm -hmm. where do we go to find out more? Yeah. So all my recordings are on Spotify, which is my name, Mutter Nan, and that's all there. It's on iTunes. And um, if you go to my website, MutterNan.com, M-A-D-H-U-R-N-A-I-N.com, um, it's all there and you can download it there um, or you can get it on your iTunes if you're enrolled there or Spotify. And then my YouTube has quite a lot of instruction videos there as well. And an Instagram, which is Mutter Nan, 
all one word. And um, I actually just for my birthday, I just turned 50. And I just, yes, released my very first develop meditation called I Matter. And it's for people who have low self-esteem or for people who have grandiosity and narcissistic tendencies. So it helps to for the mighty to relax, as Terry would say, the mighty to melt and for the weak to rise. Oh, well, happy birthday. Yeah. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. What a beautiful yeah. gift. And if you go to my website, modernand.com, and you click on the new meditation release, I matter, and you put in the code BDAY, B-D-A-Y, you get it for free. Oh. So um, we'll definitely so- make sure that gets in the show notes. Yeah. B-Day. B-D-A-Y. Okay. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? No, it was great to be here. <clears throat> and I had enjoyed my time visiting and getting to know you and, and sharing with the audience. Likewise, it's been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation and I just love the serendipity of that. The fact that you get to work with somebody like Terry Real and I can tell that it's been integrated and now Mm -hmm. you're doing your own thing. So it's really cool to see um, that spread of, I guess, goodness, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just like this ripple effect. Very cool. everyone that concludes another amazing episode of outside the studio i hope you enjoyed yourself i hope you learned something new maybe remembered something old maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life my (laughs) you can hear my dog in the background she's doing a little happy dance um so daisy enjoyed it Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius, Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go around. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.